Jesus, Jesus at the pool party. You ever think about John chapter 5 that way? Jesus at the pool party. What we see in this chapter, big picture, God gives a man life. And God gives one man new life to demonstrate something in particular. He demonstrates how God gives a new life, a new kind of life, to everyone who believes him. And God gives that new life not merely to have it and lay on your mattress. God gives a new life for us to get up and go in it. God gives us new life to join God in what God is doing to invite others into that new life. That's what John chapter 5 is about. We're going we're gonna to see it unfold in two ways. First, Live in God's new life. God gives new life. Most of you have received God's new life, perhaps. Live in that new life. It's not merely to have. It's not merely the future. It is to live in. Live in God's new life. And then the way, the way essentially, that we live in God's new life is we give God's new life to others. We extend that invitation. As Jesus did there, we join God in Jesus in what God is doing, and that is giving new life to others. So let's jump in. John chapter 5. Live in God's new life. John chapter 5, beginning of verse 1. If you're using the, the uh, church Bible, I almost said the pool Bible, I don't know why. If you're, if you're using the church Bible, you'll find us on page 890, I think, 890. John chapter 5. In verse 1, sometimes people wonder, well, what page is that in my Bible? I have no idea what pages it is in your Bible, but in my Bible, it's page uh, 1289, if that helps you at all. It doesn't. John chapter 5 and verse 1. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went to Jerusalem. So there is this festival time, and that tells us that the city is more crowded than usual. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate. This was the gate near to the temple where they'd bring in the sheep, which were going to be used for temple sacrifices. The pool was also near the temple. There was a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda. It had five roofed colonnades, porches. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. And when Jesus saw him lying there and knew what he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? And the sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to come to put me into the pool. When the water is stirred up and while I'm going, another steps down before me. He understood the healing came from the water. He understood the healing came at a circumstance, at a certain way, certain things happened, and then there was a chance, and he had no chance. That's what he understood. He didn't know Jesus. We're going to find that. He didn't even know who Jesus was. He had no concept. It's helpless. Verse 8, Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed. And he took up his bed, and he walked. End of verse 9. Now that day was the Sabbath. It's going to be a problem. But let's pause there for now. First of all, this man at the pool is healed. As I told the kids, he is helpless. He cannot save himself. He can't do anything for himself. There is nobody else who cares about him. He is stuck there. I don't know how long he's been there, but he's been like this for 38 years. And he wonders, does God care? 
does anybody care? The fact that nobody else seems to care tells him, echoes around in his soul that not even God cares. That's what that feeling will do for you. And yet, Jesus comes to the pool party. Well, it's not a party yet. It's more commiserating. And Jesus comes and everything changes. I think shortly after this, it was a mob. And Jesus, in the midst of all the many people clamoring, Jesus withdraws. He's, Jesus, you could say, has stirred up the pool, right? Not the water, but the people. And he's made a point that God gives new life, and it comes by believing his word. God gives new life. God restores us to life and relationship that we're supposed to have. You see, relationship, this man is close to the temple. In fact, let me, let me show you the Pool of Bethesda. One a bigger picture. There's the Temple Mount over here on your left-hand side. And right next to it at the corner there, those four towers, that's the Antonio Fortress. That's the Roman fortress that they built at that corner of the temple so that they could keep an eye on things. They could look over into the temple courtyard. If there was any riot forming or any uprising of any kind, they could pour soldiers onto the temple court very quickly and calm things down. And uh, a little further over where the yellow arrow points, there's the Pool of Bethesda. Now, right next to the Pool of Bethesda, the Romans, because a lot of Roman soldiers in that garrison, the Romans had their own god of healing. His name was Asclepius. And they had an Asclepius center with healing baths. And the idea was there, if you would go and soak in, in these Asclepius healing baths, you could be healed. Where the Jewish folks couldn't go to the, and to do so would be idolatry, because that's believing in a false god. But these people hanging out at the Pool of Bethesda, let's zoom in on the Pool of Bethesda. They are treating this water that's in these reservoirs, two very deep reservoirs. That's one of the reasons the guy couldn't just crawl and dump himself in the, into the pool himself. They're very deep. They were reservoirs holding water that was used for the temple. And, and if you fell off the edge just into the pool, you could see the, the sides are quite steep. You would easily drown. And so, but they were treating this pool of Bethesda because it had sacred water. It had water used in the temple. It was considered living water. That's a term Jesus will use elsewhere. It was called living water because it was water that flowed in a stream into the upper pool. And from the upper pool, there was a little, there was a gateway they could open and close that would allow water to flow into the bottom pool. All that to say that the people gathered around there, the lame, the blind, the crippled, the paralyzed, they are not allowed to go into the temple. They are close. They are within the shadows of the temple, but they can't enter in because they're broken. They're separated from God. They're cut off from God. Does God care about us? And God, God doesn't hang out in the temple. The Son of God, oh yes, he'd been there, John chapter 2, but the Son of God comes to where they are. He comes to the pool party. He knows this man. This man doesn't know him, but he knows this man, and he comes to him. The man is helpless. The man admits he can do nothing for himself. And Jesus tells him, get up, arise, take up your bed, and walk. It's not unlike what he says to Lazarus coming out of the grave, because that's also what's being illustrated here. New life is being given to this man. This man was not created to crawl. This man was not created to drag himself or to have to be carried. This man was created as all humanity is made to walk upright. 
Some of you are thinking, yeah, but as I've gotten older, it's getting harder and harder to be upright. It's getting harder and harder to, to walk and certainly to run. And that's the weakness of our mortality. That is your own body telling you, brother, sister, you need a savior. This isn't going to carry you for eternity, and it will not. The teens, the 20-somethings in the room, they think, oh, yeah, I am strong. I've got this. Just you wait. Someday you'll be over 38, and you'll, you'll know. That, that, that there's, a, there's a weakness within us. And, and this raising of this one paralyzed man, this crippled man, this raising him up to walk, to be upright again, the way God created humanity in the garden, he is restored back to what he was made for. That's what's going on here. And there's an image here, there's a picture here of God's miraculous restoration of us into the life that he made us for. That's what's going on. Now, God's new life is not according to religious rules and forms. That's where the Sabbath comes in. Because the law said some things about the Sabbath. But what the, what the religious leaders had done is they had, they had built rules around the rules of the Sabbath. And they built rules around those. It was called fencing the law. So that they would build additional rules, further, further restrictive, so that somebody didn't even get close to violating God's law because you'd have to break three other laws of theirs, their traditions, before you ever got close. So keeping people farther and farther away from the chance of breaking the law, but restricting them, binding them tighter and tighter in the process. And they say, hey, wait a minute, you can't carry that on the Sabbath. That's work, carrying that bed on the Sabbath. And so the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it's the Sabbath, it's not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. The Lord is the Lord of the Sabbath. And what this says here is the one who heals you, the one who gives you new life is the one that we listen to. Listen to You know, too long in church history, there have been the tradition of the church that is sometimes elevated over God's word so that what the church has always done is used as a judge by which the word of God is evaluated. And we'll do this and not do that that's in God's word because this is what the church understands. And this is what the church holds to. This is what the church has always believed. And that's flat out backwards. What the church does and what the church believes must always be under the scrutiny of what God's word says. I, the one who healed me, said to me, take up my bed and walk. And I'm going to do, I must do, not what man says, but I must do what the one who healed me said. I must do what the one, that's why we spend time in God's word. That's why you spend time in God's word. Because we must do not what anybody says, but what God who has given us his life says. So, who is this man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? And now the man who had been healed, he didn't even know it was Jesus. For Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. All the much more, I'm sure, after he was healed. Afterwards, Jesus found him in the temple. See, now he can go to the temple, you see? He's been restored back into relationship with God. And Jesus finds him there in the temple. And he says to him, look, you are well. You are good. You've been restored. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. 
Is he saying that his crippledness was because of sin? No. But what is it that will separate him again from that temple? It's sin. Sin is what separates us from God. And the new life that he gives us has dealt with the sin that separates us. We're brought back in relationship again. The man who went away and he told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And that's why the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them this. He said, my father is working until now and I am working. Nothing wrong with that. He is because his father is. They don't like that even more. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Okay. God's new life is not religious life. It's not religious forms and rules that fashion God according to our expectation that presume that I'm accepted to God, that I can come to God based on what I do or don't do. That's the Pharisee's model. It's not Jesus' model. Jesus is radical, though he's not revolutionary. He's not doing anything that's contrary to Moses. He's not doing anything contrary to the Old Testament. Moses never said, if you are healed, you cannot carry your bed. Moses never said that. They said that. Jesus came to give us life so that we could be in relationship with God. Look at verse 19. Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that's what the Son does. The Father loves the Son and shows, all him, shows him all that he himself, the Father, is doing. And greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. That's what he's done at the pool. He chose one man because he is going to give life, this new life, to whom he will. He's not saying it's only for that Son. He's just showing that this is what God does, that God gives life, and it's of his initiative. God does this. Look what God has done there. Don't construe it any other way about how, what this man did to earn it. He didn't even know. He never knew that Jesus would do this for him, and Jesus did. And that's to illustrate this, verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has everlasting life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. This new life that that man was given at the pool that day, that new life is illustrative of the new life, the eternal life that he gives to us in Jesus. Jesus says here that whoever believes God concerning his son Jesus has, not will have, but has everlasting life. That's an important distinction. Not that we're going to receive eternal life one day when we die and we can live in heaven. The gospel has been... Has been really misunderstood among evangelical churches as a, a future-oriented thing, almost like fire insurance. And once we've got the policy, we're good, but we should probably behave, you know, to stay in, make sure the policy is going to stay in force. That is not the gospel. The gospel is not primarily about an eternal destination. Did you know that? The gospel is primarily about eternal life, a life that doesn't end, but a life that for the believer has already started. 
The gospel is primarily about restored into relationship with God our Father through his son Jesus, the same relationship that Jesus himself has with the Father, that he has brought us into that relationship. That's the gospel. Now, what does that have to do with eternity as far as destination? Well, if I'm restored in relationship with God, if I am going to be in relationship with God, in fact, I am so restored in relationship, there's no longer anything between me and God. Before, there was my rebellion, there was my sin, there was my guilt, there was my fear that caused me to flee. And God has pushed all of that aside. He's dealt with it. It was all gathered together and nailed on the cross in Jesus Christ. So that now, if Jesus cries out on the cross, it is finished. There is nothing now between me and God, if I believe God concerning Jesus. Everything has been moved out of the way. Everything has been dealt with. Everything has been paid in full. Out of shame, I have honor. Out of guilt, I have forgiveness and innocence. And right, I'm right. I'm righteous before God. Instead of fear, I have God's power. There's nothing. In fact, we are so close, the Lord and I, we are so close that he came and lived, he came and lived with me. We think about going and living with God someday. God came and lived with us by his spirit who indwells every believer. That's how close. So, where would I live for eternity? Well, with him. Because that's where we belong, right? Where else would we live? But that's incidental to who he has made us. Look what God has done. Oh, my goodness. Behold what manner of love the Father has given unto you, that you would be called the sons of God, the children of God. Wow. Can you just think about that for a minute? Join me. Wow. Oh, that's really weak. Look, 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 come on, just pause for a minute. Look around, look around the room. Look around the room. Look at all these strange people here. Oh, my goodness. Imagine the love of God that these, these ones, look around, these ones would be called the children of God. Okay, now, wow, wow. That's what God has done. You belong. He has lifted you. He has raised you. He has given you new life. You couldn't even crawl. And now you can walk. Now you can walk. So, of course, we we should do what Jesus said to do. Get up and go. God has given us this new life. And what does it look like in a nutshell? Look down to verse 30. We're going to skip ahead in the chapter a little bit. Look at verse 30. Jesus says this about himself. This is Jesus the Lord, Jesus the creator, Jesus the one through whom everything was made and there wasn't anything made that has been made apart from him. And Jesus says this, I do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just. Oh, I wish that were true in Washington, D.C. Nothing on their own, but as I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. That's Jesus' life in a nutshell. And you know what? That is the life that he has restored us to. Not living our own life as we please, as we want, what we will, but living his life in us. That's what he's restored us to. That's what we were always made for. We were made in the what? 
the image of God. We were made to be God's image bearers, God's agents, God's regents over his creation. That's actually why we are upright. Of all of creation, we are upright. And that's why. It's part of the image bearing. God made us in ways like him to represent him. And he's brought us back into that, not for our own will. What happened in the garden? There we were in humanity, in Adam and Eve, living in the Garden of Eden. And yet there, all of this, my children, is for you. Just this one thing. Don't assert your own will. Don't choose for yourself good and evil. Just this one thing. And they asserted their own will instead of God's will. And asserting their own will, deciding for themselves what would be good and what would be evil. They rebelled from God and then hid themselves from him. And they were separated from him. And God has restored us back in Jesus Christ. This new life, this raised up life, this upright life is this. Living not in our will, but the will of the Father who gave us this life. That's it in a nutshell. Now, Okay, let's take that back to Eliza in the nursery. Why would we do that? Why would you spend an hour in the morning during first or second service in the nursery caring for somebody else's kids? Some of you said, I cared for my own kids. Why would I now care for other people's kids? Exactly. You would do that for them, for that mom who you know what the rest of her week is like. But for this hour... She is able to focus, know that her child is being loved, her child is being cared for. She is able to sit in this worship service and sing her praises to God and soak in the truth of God's word freely, fully, not worried about what's going on with her kiddo because you're there. And not only that, not only is it for her and her growth, but it's for you because when you give yourself away for the sake of others in God's will rather than your own will, that is your and my spiritual growth as well. You see it? Whatever, that, 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 that's why growing together is so essential for us here at Brush Prairie. Serving together is so essential for us because that is where we live in and live out this life that he's given us in Jesus. He's given us this life. This new life in Jesus, raised up like the man at the pool. He's given us this life in order to join God in what God is doing. Not unlike a little child, joins their father or mom in what they're doing. So we join God in what God is doing. And what, what is God doing? He's giving new life. So if I'm going to say that I am living in his new life, that living in his new life has to include giving his new life to people around me. God has set you and I particularly around certain people that we could be the ones, perhaps, to go to their pool party. We could be the ones to extend his invitation to them. And I want to suggest in the last half of the chapter, I want to suggest three different ways in which you can do that. There's three witnesses. Jesus, Jesus is going on. He's continuing a dialogue with the Pharisees. He's not intimidated by them. He continues the dialogue, and he, he says, you know, I could, I could tell you just from myself in verse 31, if I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not deemed true. His testimony about himself, he says, it doesn't mean it's not true. It's just that you don't believe it to be true. You think it's just what I'm saying, but it's not just what he's saying, although it's true. He says he gives them three other witnesses. Why does he do that? 
Because the law says by two or three witnesses, everything is confirmed. So if you can come up with three other independent witnesses that this is what God has said, that he is who he is, he's got them. Unless they simply don't, don't believe according to God's word, which is ultimately the problem. Will we believe God or not? That's ultimately the issue. He says those three witnesses are this. There's John. You heard John. John told his own testimony. John told his own story. John told how he knew who I am. God gave his own experience with Jesus that related who Jesus was. You have John's witness. He said, not only that, but the very works that I do. That's the second witness. The works that I do, they bear witness to me. Things that Jesus did showed the truth of the gospel. Not only that, he says, but you have the scriptures. You have the Old Testament. You have Moses. You have the prophets. You search the scriptures, and them you think you have eternal life. But those scriptures are that which testify of me. So three witnesses. What does that have to do with you and I? Is that just Jesus and the Pharisees in the first century? You say, John the Baptist is not here. No, but you are. And you know what? You've got a story to tell. You've got your story of your experience, your encounter with Jesus, how you know who he is, the difference that he's made in your life, how God convinced you. How did that happen, that God convinced you, you were persuaded and you believed in Jesus? How did that happen? That is your story. It's unique to you. It's not quite like anybody else's. And in our culture today, where we easily don't listen to people with a differing opinion, but everybody still has their story. And you're still allowed, for now, you're still allowed to have your story. It might be relegated to that's your truth, this is my truth, but that's okay. Tell your truth. Tell your story. Let God also confirm that with other witnesses to them so that they will believe that they'll understand that your truth is truth. But tell your story. Like John the Baptist, and for a while they listened to John the Baptist. He says here concerning John the Baptist, you send people to John, and he has borne witness to the truth in verse 33. Now, not that the testimony that I receive is merely from men, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. You were willing for a while to rejoice in the light that John gave concerning who Jesus is as John told his story. Tell your story. Why? Because Paul told us in Philippians, right? That in this world, among them, you shine as lights in the midst of darkness. That doesn't promise here that they're going to put up with you forever. But they put up with John for a while. They were fascinated by John. Even when Jesus came on the scene, they begin to get a little... Nervous about Jesus. And they begin to reject Jesus. Still, they didn't want to go on record as not believing John. They listen to John's story. They'll listen to your story. Just don't, don't push people. Just tell your story about how you came to know who Jesus is. Among them you shine as lights in the midst of darkness. So don't hide your light under a bushel, Jesus says. Once we were in darkness, but now we are light in the Lord. So what do we do? Ephesians says, walk as children of light. Now, I like that last phrase, walk as children of light, because that that takes the first witness, your story, and it moves it into the second one, which is what we do, our works, working the works of Jesus that God has also given us to do. Jesus says in verse 36, the testimony that I have is greater than that of John, 
For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. That's why we do summer of service. That's why we, outside of summer of service, that's why we give ourselves away for others. That's why we look for an opportunity to meet a need, to serve in some way. You look for a way, how can I be as Christ, loving my neighbor as myself, doing for them what I would do for me or doing for them what I want, would want somebody to do for me, even if it doesn't mean that they're not going to do for me. That's not the point. The point is how do I give myself away for somebody else? That's doing the works that God has given us. No, you're not saved by works. But it could be that if you show something of the love of Christ to others, Peter says that even though they don't understand you, they will glorify God. They will glorify God because of his work in your life and what it is that they see in you. We are saved by his grace. We are saved for by grace we save through faith, it's not of ourselves, it's the gift of God, it's not of works, lest anyone should boast, Ephesians 2, but it goes on in verse 10, for we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for what? For good works, which God has before ordained for you to walk in them, for you to live in, for you to get up and pick it up and go. And in your going to somebody else, they might see something of Christ's unconditional love. Why are you doing this for me? Because of what Jesus did for me. Tell your story. Look for an opportunity to serve. And last of all, there's the witness of God's word. He said, he said you, have, you have Moses. Look at verse 39. You search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. They bear witness about me. Verse 46, if you believed Moses, the Old Testament, especially the first five books, if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. Jesus is all over those pages. And so, how can I use the scriptures in relation with somebody that doesn't care anything about the Bible? Because you're not talking about other folks in church. You're talking about who could I share God's invitation of eternal life to people who know nothing about him? Well, in the midst of whatever is going on, a classic line that is sometimes used. There's, there's something called Bible storying that's, that's moved. It's become really big in the, in the missions world. And often things that start in missions overseas, internationally, in other cultures, along the way the church realizes that's not merely a missions thing, that's a people thing. Guess what? We figured out that not only do people in other cultures, in less oral or more illiterate cultures, not only do they like stories, Americans like stories. That's why you watch TV. That's why you binge Netflix or stream Hulu or whatever it is that you do. You like stories. You don't have to read them to like them. You love a story. And in the midst of something, that reminds me of a story. That's the way the missionary uses it overseas. So you're about, you're nearly to the ends of the earth. You know, you can see the ends of the earth from here. So we are on a mission field. So in the midst of a conversation, when something comes up, an opportunity comes up, God makes a connection in your head, get it out of your head, into the conversation. That reminds me of a story. Well, that means you need to know the stories. You need to be in this word for yourself so that it can overflow out of you to others. That reminds me of a story. 
Maybe it's as simple as somebody in the morning asks you how you are. And you say, I'm great. You know, I was just reading something this morning, and man, it made my day. And you give them, don't give them the whole chapter. Come on now, have a heart. Just, just give them something sweet out of that psalm or a line, some promise that you're holding on to. It is precious too. You can't fake this, okay? So one of the requirements here, if you're going to wait for somebody to ask you how you are so you can go, well, prepare yourself. Have some time with the Lord. Fill your cup so it overflows so it can come out of you to other people. How are you this morning? I am great. <laughs> I was just reading something this morning. Or it might go the other way. How are you this morning? Oh, not so good. You know, this is going on. That's going on. Be open about the troubles, the problems. Life isn't always happy, happy, wonderful. Everything is great. Be open about those problems. And yet, I was reading this morning, and that helped me. Oh. Now you're much closer to their experience. Life is a mess. Life is a wreck. Life is falling apart. Here I have been by this pool for 38 years, and yet there's a word of hope. There's hope here. All right. Again, you have to know the truth of Scripture if it's going to encourage you so that it can encourage others. It's the importance of teaching children, your grandchildren, teaching Sunday school. It's the importance of growing together in God's truth in a relationship with others so that as we are growing, God's truth can flow out of us to others. Let's go a little more bold. Maybe you've had a conversation with somebody for a while. They're, they're not antagonistic about it. They appreciate your faith, but they're just not convinced. They just don't see it for themselves. Well, maybe you can go a little further. Have you ever had somebody read through one of the Gospels with you so that you could understand from there what it says about who Jesus is? Just right there from those pages, John or Mark or Luke, that you could just read that over some time with somebody interacting. What do we learn? For instance, if you did that with this story in John chapter 5, you learn that here's a man who's unable to help himself. He's helpless. He could not get there on his own. Jesus comes to him. He thinks probably that Jesus, that God doesn't care about him. But God knows him. God notices him. And God sends Jesus right to him. And it wasn't about religion. It wasn't about filling squares and meeting requirements. In fact, he, he goes contrary to the religious expectations of the day. It's not about religion. It's about restoring us into a relationship with God. God raises this man up, and he's able to go into the temple for the first time in at least 38 years. He's able to stand up again in that relationship that man was created for. Have you ever had somebody sit down and go through the Bible, go through one of the books of the Bible, one of the Gospels especially, and just see, what does it tell us about Jesus? Let's just do that. And then you let the Word speak for itself and you help. I want to close with this. In verse 44, one of the obstacles... The reason that hinders us and the thing that's in the way for other people. You want to know what it is? Look at verse 44. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? This gospel that we have to give, this gospel is a gospel of glory that God has bestowed on us this standing as his own, belonging to him, his own children. 
As not only that, but God has invited you and I into his greatest work. His greatest work wasn't creating the solar system. His greatest work was not penguins. Penguins are cool, but that's not it. His greatest work is the restoring of lost, rebellious, broken humanity back into whole relationship with him. That is God's greatest work. He entrusted it to none less than Jesus, the Son of God himself. Angels could not do this. God gave it to his Son. And in Jesus, God has given that work, that greatest work, to you and I. This is a gospel of glory. What gets in our way is we look for glory in other places. We are easily distracted away from the best thing God has given us to do into all kinds of other goals and ambitions and distractions that seem to satisfy. And that's what's in the way of the person you pray for too. That's what's in the way of somebody receiving God's glorious gift in Jesus. They're seeking glory somewhere else, in some other God, instead of from the only God. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? John chapter 5 invites us, urges us, compels us to live in his life, to give his life, to share his glory with people around us. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for your mercy and grace that is seen in the story of this man at a pool. And Father, it's not just about what you could do for a man at a pool who was crippled and could be healed. But you did that to show something even bigger, that you would give your eternal life to anybody, whoever would believe God's word concerning his son Jesus. Father, I pray that this morning. Anyone here who would this morning tell you simply this, God, I believe you concerning your son, Jesus, who came and died for me to restore me into relationship with you. God, I want to take the next step in that relationship with you because of Jesus. Father, that they would, like that man, have new life because they believed what you said. Father, for us who believe, Lord, would you give us the courage? Would you give us the strength? Would you give us the opportunity today and this week to live in this new life you've given us? We ask it in Jesus' name. Father, we pray that as we would give ourselves, we pray that we would even give in this offering that's now received. Lord, you would use that to extend the invitation to eternal life.